But there's another time when the door is closed. And this one's a little chilling. The door closes on those who are not ready when the door is open. Who aren't looking for it. Who aren't prepared for it. Matthew chapter 25, there's an interesting parable. Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. They're waiting for the bride and the groom to come. And as they're waiting there, five of these foolish virgins, they kind of use up the oil in their lamps. They're doing other things. They're not paying attention. And so they don't have extra oil for their lamps. And so just before the return of the bride and groom, they go off looking for oil. Well, the five wise virgins, they have oil for their lamp. And they're waiting in expectation for the coming of the bride and the groom together. By the way, the bride and the groom, what does that indicate for you in Scripture? The church and Jesus. The coming of the church and Jesus. They what? Coming together? They come together? Yes, they do. It's another study for another time. But they're waiting there. So who is it then? If, if the bride is the church and the picture in the parable is these virgins are waiting for the bride and the groom to come together, then the virgins in the parable are not the church. It's not talking to Christians. It's talking about Jews. It's talking, I believe, to Jewish people during the tribulation, some who will be expectantly waiting for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom, other Jews who will not, who will miss it, and the door will close on them. Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 10, while they are going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. But I'll tell you how this does apply to the church. There are those who claim to be Christians today who are not looking for the coming of Jesus. Who just assume he would put it off as long as possible. Who really don't have a desire there. Uh, they'll grace the doors of a church or a Bible study every now and then. But it doesn't, it doesn't create any sense of, of longing for them. Again, there are people sitting in churches today who when Jesus raptures the church will still be sitting in churches today. Because they're not ready. They're not looking. I can't imagine a more horrifying place than to be the person who misses the rapture and realizes it immediately. There will be a lot of people who, who do not go up when the church is called home. There will be a lot of people left behind. A lot of people in absolute ignorance who will be watching the Steven Spielberg specials and they'll go, oh, yeah, it's an alien uh, encounter. They just, the aliens came and took a bunch of people. Weird how they were you know, mostly Christian. All Christian. But that's, you know, who won't get it? It'll take years into the tribulation for people to understand what has really happened. But gang, there are going to be some who know instantaneously. When the church goes, and they're going to realize that they were not looking for it. Now I'll tell you something. God's grace is massive. And there are going to be people caught up in the rapture who as they're going up are going to be going, What's going on? This is great! You know? Whoa! Did I make it? I did! Okay! You know? And we'll all be going... Yeah, you did. You did. Don't know how. <laughs> Actually, probably those who are saying don't know how are going to be standing there going, Yeah, how come you're going? Wait a minute. I'm still here. <laughs> it's not good. Gang, the door closes on those who want the door to be closed. The door closes on those who are not ready when the door is open. I don't say that to scare you. I say it to say, be ready. Just be ready. When you wake up in the morning, would you open your eyes and look to heaven and just say, Today, Lord, today... Is this it? The church of the open door. Well, Jesus then gives a positive affirmation. Verse 8. See, all that time we got through an entire verse. <laughs> verse 8. 
He says, I know your deeds. Now, when he said this in previous churches, we kind of shudder. Uh-oh. <laughs> he knows what we've been doing. And he says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power. And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Man, if Jesus says that to me, if he would say that to me, I, oh, that's so cool. I've got a little power. And I've kept his word. And I have not denied his name. Three beautiful, wonderful affirmations. And these are also something to look for in the end times church that is Philadelphia. The first is you have little power. You have little power. I think Jesus would say, forget about the hype and start trusting the Holy Spirit. You are the William Careys. You're the cobblers, not the Constantines. You're the little guy. You're feeble, but you're faithful. You're weak, but you're wise. Your walk, it's, it's slow. It is a walk. You're not running. You're not flying. You're walking. But you're walking in the Word. Oh, Philadelphia, you're doing great. You have little power. Little power. 1 Corinthians 1.27 God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You've got little power. Not massive great power. Little power. But that's a good thing. Now listen. And you've got to listen carefully. And I know this is going to raise some questions and people may disagree. And I'm struggling through this one to understand it. I have never seen this before. But there's another indication here about little power. Little power Little power in the Greek is two words. Microteros, where we get our word micro for tiny. Microteros, and the word power, dunamis. Microteros, dunamis. So what does that mean? Dunamis, gang, is the power that is most closely associated with the working, the function, the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the dunamis that Jesus was talking about in Acts chapter 1 when he said, You stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Until you get the dunamis, the power of the Spirit of God. And Philadelphia has microteros dunamis? Little power? A little bit of the Holy Spirit? What is this saying? Are, are you saying, Rick, that we don't have the Holy Spirit like maybe they used to? No. I'm not saying that. That's why I'm saying listen very closely. I'm saying that Jesus may be indicating, may be, it's an opinion, may be indicating that we as a church, as Philadelphia, in the end times, desire to see the big power moves of the first century, and we're not going to see them. Peter. Peter would walk along the temple, and when his shadow fell on someone who was sick, they were healed. That's big power. That's huge. I haven't seen that one yet. Microteros dunamis. Little power. But Lord, we want to see the grand miracles, the, the first century stuff, the raising of the, the, the power stuff. Hey, Philadelphia, you're doing great. You've got microteros dunamis. Little power. Rick, are you saying we're not going to see healings? No, I'm not. Are you saying, are you trying to, you know, you know, waffle our way out of believing that God can actually heal us and do powerful things? No, I'm not. I'm just saying we might not see it as much as they saw it in the first century. We may not experience it in the way that they experienced it then. Ah, oh, that sounds like a cop-out. I'm just telling you what the Word says. Philadelphia has little power. 
little power. It's not a faith issue, gang. It's a dunamis issue. I'll tell you something I heard last week that just ticked me off. It was someone who was talking about healing. And you know what? I, the person may even be here. I can't even remember right now. But talking about praying for someone to be healed in the church. Oh, I know who it was. Okay, good. She's not here, so we can talk about it. No. She was talking about praying for someone to be healed. She was raised, uh, came to the Lord in, in a very strong Pentecostal church. And praying for this certain person in the church to be healed. And everybody knew it was going to be healed. It was going to be healed. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And this was a godly man. And everybody was so impressed with the faith. And he was sure he was going to be healed. And she was a brand new Christian. And they kept saying, you pray, you pray. He's going to be healed. And people, friends of hers, would say, well, what if he's not? No, he's going to be. And she was absolutely convinced. And he died. And it shook her faith to the core. And she went to the pastor of the church and she said, I don't understand. Why did he pass away? And the pastor, who could have said, hey man, he got the greatest healing. He got the ultimate healing. He's with the Lord. I mean, what, what more could anybody possibly want? Instead of saying that, the pastor said, he didn't have enough faith. Have you heard that before? You know what? It makes me sick. Because it's wrong and it's deceitful and it is not of the Spirit of God. Well, you don't have enough faith, so you just can't get well. Wrong old Mary Lou. <laughs> Your name's Mary Lou, I apologize. But is it possible here that what the Spirit is telling us is, I'm going to do healings. And there are a couple of men in our church who we have been praying for for healing, and I believe, gang, that the Lord is going to do it. I believe that, Gail. And I'm not saying, and it's, this is why I'm walking so carefully, because I do not want to imply in the least that I don't believe God's going to heal Gail, or heal Jim, or heal anybody in this body or anybody that he wants to heal. God will do what he wants to do, and we have faith and we trust him all the way as far as he takes us. But the reality may be, gang, that we will not see the moving of the Holy Spirit in those grand power moves like he did in the first century. We may be the church of little power. And you know what? It doesn't take a whole lot of power to heal a human life. Just a little. You're the church of the little power. You trust in that. You believe in me for that. God says the days of Philadelphia are marked this way. Well then, how will people know we're Christian? The first century, of course they knew. They, they could do all kinds of miraculous, fantastic things. How are they going to know that we're Christians? You know the answer. Jesus said, by this, all men will know. But you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, you love each other. You want to know how when people walk in the door of the bridge that they have a sense that the Holy Spirit is here? It's not because I'm up on the stage healing people and knocking them off the stage. It's because they see the love. It's the love. That will tell the Lord that you are a disciple of Christ. We may be in the time of microteros, dunamis, little strength. The age of Philadelphia may be a time of decrease in the miracles. The days of the grand miraculous moves may be fewer and further between. But gang, guess what? God is gearing down, I believe, to gear up. <laughs> Call it the calm before the storm. We may see less now, but the world is on the verge of seeing stuff it has never seen before. Stuff we know of as the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. He says you've kept my word too. Oh, you've kept my word. Billy, you hold it. You study it. You cling to it. You live by it. Despite the outcome, Philadelphia, you've got my word. That's, by the way, another reason why the dunamis 
why the dunamis, though it's effective and powerful and wonderful, is not as necessary as it was in the first century. In the first century, they did not have the word. We do. We've got the word. So let's share it. Let's get it out. And he says, you've not denied my name. You recognize more than the miracles and more even than the teaching of the word. You recognize, you see my deity. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on the earth and even under the earth. And that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, these are the characteristics of the end times church that Jesus is madly in love with. Philadelphia. He's crazy about Philadelphia. Church of the open door. Verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Who is this synagogue of Satan? We've seen the synagogue of Satan before. In Philadelphia of Asia Minor, as in Smyrna, they were false Jews. False Jews who were trying to protect their own hide and so turning in Christians. And at Smyrna, Jesus said, that's a synagogue of Satan. You're not a true Jew if you do something like that. In the same we talked about as the church in the days of the Inquisitions, that's not of the Lord. That's not the true church. That's not something that any Christian would look back on and say, I'm proud of those days. We did good stuff. Took a lot of heads. It was great. Who is this synagogue of Satan? There's a difference. There's something I, I want to share. It gains something that I think applies to the prophetic end times church of Philadelphia. I think the synagogue of Satan is anyone who would replace true Israel. It's called replacement theology. Some of you have heard it. It's also called kingdom now teaching or dominion theology. And the mentality is pervasive in most of the denominational world. It's a belief that God is done with the Jew. Israel had its chance. They blew it. Jesus came. They put him on the cross. They are toast. They're history. They're out of the picture. We are now new Israel. And all of the promises in the Old Testament now apply to the church. All the curses... Israel can have those. But we get all the promises now. Israel is gone out of the picture. Gang, this mentality, this replacement theology is politically driven, it's nationally driven, and it's theocracy focused. And its goal, its goal is the setting up of the kingdom now. Its goal is the church preparing the kingdom and handing it over to Christ saying, look at what a great job we've done. And I'll tell you something, the church has nothing on the Spirit of God as far as saving souls. And you're going to see that in the tribulation. Matter of fact, there's a point in the tribulation, as you're reading later in Revelation, where you're going to see more people saved, possibly during that time when the church does not exist in the world, than when the church was in the world. God will save whether we're here or not. And it's not because of us that great salvation happens or the people receive the Lord. We just get to, remember what I said before, we get to go along for the ride. We're sitting in the lap going, this is great. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but this is great. That's us. Hal Lindsey said that it began 100 years before the 1930s when Bible teachers began to say that God is through with Israel. Hitler was a proclaimed Catholic. The Vatican secured the escape of hundreds of Nazi war criminals. Furthermore, Vatican City has been declared New Jerusalem. 
But it's not just Roman Catholicism. Protestantism carries this banner just as mightily, if not more so. The church is New Jerusalem. The Jews lost their chance. And God has replaced Israel with the church. And if you want to know how God feels about the church from a New Testament perspective, open up Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 and just read. Read those three chapters. Paul says the gifts and the callings of God speaking about Israel are irrevocable. I have made covenants with these people, and if God doesn't keep his covenants to the Jews, what makes you think he's going to keep it with you? God made promises that he will follow through on. It's interesting that even the prophecy that motivated William Carey was about Israel and not about the church. Now God can use things to drive us and encourage us and send us out. But the prophecy, Isaiah 54 verse 2, is for Israel, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And, listen to this, your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. That's a promise to Israel. And it will happen. And gang, I would not want to be numbered with those who replace Israel. When those who say, Israel's had their chance, they're done. God is not through with Israel. The rapture gang is for the rescue of the church. The second coming of Jesus is for the rescue of Israel. The judgment of the world and the setting up of the kingdom of David. The keys to the kingdom that Jesus holds. Well, verse 10 going on. One quick other thing. Let me share about that. Replacement theology. One of the strongest anti-Semitic proponents during the time of the uh, Reformation was Martin Luther himself. And I don't know if you've seen it, but some of the things that Martin Luther said about Jewish people, referring to them as the Christ killers, referring specifically that they all should be done away with. And Hitler was reading some of those writings. That's just history. Not making this stuff up. Verse 10. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I will also keep you. Hang on, i got to tell you about the word of my perseverance. What exactly is the word of my perseverance? The word is probably best translated, patience. Because you have been patient. Because you have kept the word of my patience. What does that mean? Paul defines it for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul is commending the Thessalonian Christians. And he says the following. He says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And listen to this, and how you waited for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us, from the wrath to come. You wait for Him. You wait for Him. Thessalonica, that's what's great about you. You're a church that's waiting for the Lord. The Greek word for wait is anaminio. Anaminio, and it literally means to wait in a state of readiness. Preparation. It's like when Hunter goes out on the ship, and you're prepared, you're ready. If the call comes, you go. Any of you guys who fly, any of you guys in the Navy, you know what a state of readiness is. You know what waiting is like too, I'm sure. As the days turn into weeks, turn into months, and nothing's happening, you're, you know, oh man. But you know what? You're ready to go. When the call comes, you go. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about. That is the state of readiness. So what does it mean to keep the word of his patience? It means patiently waiting in a state of readiness for the coming of the Lord, day in, day out. Now remember again what I said about the rapture in history. That at the stage of prophetic Philadelphia toward the end of the 1700s, it had been 1400 years since the rapture and premillennialism were taught in the church. What's premillennialism? We'll talk about that at a later date. If you don't know what that is, or you can ask me afterwards when we talk about it. But look at this quick history, A.D. 33 to 300. The rapture and premillennialism, this concept of Jesus taking the church up and then coming back and setting up his kingdom on earth. That concept, gang, was the primary belief of the church. And it's based in the scriptures. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, tells us one of the first times. It says, when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That's what the apostles expected. That's what Messiah would do. Restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus, what does he say? Verse 7, he says, no, no, actually the church is now the new Israel. We're not restoring the kingdom to anyone and the Jews because we're done with the Jews. That's not what he says. He says, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't say you're wrong. You've missed it. Israel's done. He says, no, that's for another time. And God knows that. You don't need to worry about that right now. You've got other things that you've got to deal with. But there was a lot of writing games and talk about the rapture and the second coming in that first century, in the second century. Well, okay, who really believed it back then? Maybe you've heard, maybe you've been one of those who have heard that the idea of the rapture of the church and premillennialism and pre-tribulation and all that stuff was invented by a man named John Darby in the 1800s. You, you may have heard that. It's called Darbyism. He made it up in the 1800s. No, no, no. Peter talked about it. John talked about it. James talked about it. Paul talked about it. Barnabas talked about it. A man by the name of Ignatius, Polycarp. Justin Martyr, Tertullian, great church leaders in the first two to three hundred years talked about these things. We even have a manuscript from a sermon in the early three hundreds that was all about the rapture of the church. Because that's what the church believed. It wasn't until you get later on, around 400 A.D., on up to 1800 A.D., that premillennialism and the rapture of the church, this whole concept, began to lose steam. It was replaced by the allegorizing of prophecy and a worldview that man could actually build the kingdom on earth because things were going pretty well for the church in those years, 400, 500, 600. People thought also that there's no way a nation could come back from the dead. Once Israel was wiped out in AD 70, Israel was gone, so the prophecies couldn't have anything to do with Israel, right? Once a nation's gone, it's gone. And by the way, that's true in every case but Israel. In every case historically, a nation that has been destroyed within 200 years completely loses all identity and never reforms again. Except Israel. that was destroyed, dispersed for, what, 1,700, almost 1,800 years before, miraculously, it came back again as a nation. No way the Jewish people could be a viable group on earth again. Really. Well, from our perspective, it's absolutely possible. We've seen it happen in this generation. Prior to 1948, people couldn't believe it. And so again, you've got people going, well, things are going pretty well from the church. Israel doesn't even exist as a nation, so the prophecies can't have anything to do with them. And so this whole entire teaching of premillennialism, of the rapture of the church, of pre-tribulation theology, they kind of lost steam because people didn't know how to apply it 
until Israel came back on the scene. And then everything started to change. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that the Holy Spirit began to move men into missions at the late 1700s? Right in time for Zionism to take place, which is the movement of Jewish people back into Israel? Right in time for some of the most dramatic prophetic events that have happened all the way since the first century. God knows what he's doing. He's preparing, he's laying out the way. You might say, well, in that day, prior to 1948, who cares about the Middle East? Why would that be the focal point of a final battle? This rocky, forsaken, barren land? In Isaiah 66, verse 8, God agrees. He says, yeah, who's heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? I love the tongue-in-cheek manner of prophecy. God says, oh yeah, it's ridiculous to think a nation can become a nation in a day, but it's going to happen. And it did. And we saw it. You can hang your prophetic hat on that one. You might say, well, how important is the Middle East today? (laughs) Do we even have to ask that question? Economically in the world, politically, religiously, it is the focal point of everything, isn't it? It's not America anymore. This isn't the focal point of the world. It's the Middle East. All eyes are looking to Iraq. All eyes are looking to Jerusalem. All eyes are focused over there. When our boys ship out, that's where they head. Because that's where the action is. Well, so from 400 to 1800, premillennialism lost its steam. But in 1800, round about there, it began to gain ground again because it made sense. It fit. Suddenly, we could go back and read the prophecies in the Old Testament and say, they apply. There is an Israel to to receive this kingdom. There are possible... This is conceivable. And people began to get excited and to return to the study of the Word of God. Remember, the Church of Philadelphia is the church that kept His Word. The church that keeps His Word. John Darby was a major proponent of the premillennial view, but it was in 1800 and all these things were beginning to churn and move and the Spirit was active. Some others, the Waldensians, Bible students, the Wycliffeites, Bible students. Here's one who absolutely believed in it. Maybe you didn't know this. Sir Isaac Newton. There's an intelligent man for you. C.I. Schofield, the author of the most definitive and influential Bible for end time study, the Schofield Reference Bible, became this new breed of Bible students at this time. These teachers in the age of Philadelphia were not biblically inept. They just believed that the Bible literally meant what the Bible literally said. And honestly, that's all we're doing as we read through the study of Revelation. We just believe it means what it says, and he says what he means. Well, verse 10, Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a definitive verse for anyone who says the whole idea of the rapture of the church didn't exist until 1800. They didn't read Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Read it again. I will keep you from, the word from is ek in the Greek, out of. I will pull you out of the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon what? The whole world. The whole world. Has that ever happened? Yeah, once. The flood. And not since. There has never been a time where the entire planet has been under such a a severe tribulation or time of testing. And Jesus says, you keep the word of my patience. You keep watch for me. I'm pulling you out. 
I will bring you out of that time of testing. And regarding the tribulation, that hour of testing, that is the tribulation. How do I know? How do I know that he's really speaking about the tribulation with this time of testing? Well, again, it's coming upon the whole world to test all those who dwell. But there's another little important piece of evidence. I don't know if we've mentioned it yet in our study. But it's fascinating to me. As you read through the book of Revelation, and you may recall that we read through it chronologically. I'm just teaching it as it happened. That right now we're in the church age, tail end of the church age, in chapter 3. When we get to chapter 4, that's when the rapture of the church, the church is caught up and is in heaven. And from then on, it's future stuff. We'll see that. But what's interesting to me is if you read chapters 1 through 3, if you count up the number of times the church is mentioned, it's 19 times. The church is pervasively present in those first three chapters. Get to chapter 2. And the church is not mentioned a single time until the end of chapter 19 when she's seen in heaven as the bride of Christ. Suddenly, what about chapter 4? Oh, the church is in heaven, but it's not, the word church is not used in chapter 4. From chapter 4 through. I said, what? Oh, come on, I'm on a roll here. You're stopping me for that? Chapters 1 through 3, the church is mentioned 19 times, beginning chapter 4, all the way to chapter 19, thank you Spencer, all the way to chapter 19, the church is not mentioned, in fact, and I shared this last week or a couple weeks ago, it's interesting, there's one place where Jesus repeats that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, it's long about chapter 13, but what he says is, he who has an ear, let him hear, no mention of the church. So the church that is obviously talked about, dealt with, a part of what's going on in the first three chapters, it's gone. You don't see it again until it's the bride at the end of chapter 19. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying for the seven years of the tribulation period, I'm on a honeymoon with Jesus in heaven and I'm looking forward to that like nothing else. The church is going to go. Well, after the tribulation... Described in chapter 6 through 19, the church is seen again as the bride of Christ. And all you have to do to see that, to understand that, you don't have to listen to the teachings of John Darby in the 1800s. All you have to do is follow the flow of the book of Revelation. Just follow it. Thank you, Russ. Number three, he gives a practical recommendation. We're almost done. Stick with me. I know this is a long one tonight. Verse 11, he says, I am coming quickly. That word quickly is taxe. It's suddenly. I will come suddenly. Not quickly. It's not a good translation. I am coming suddenly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. The implication is the imminence of Jesus' return. Not the timeliness. Not that, you know, for someone reading it in the first century or the second century, of course he wasn't coming quickly, but he's coming suddenly. His coming would be so fast, people wouldn't be ready for it. You're going to be ready. I want you to be ready for it. His coming. The gang, the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial perspective that I've been talking so much about tonight, it is the only one that allows for Jesus to come the way he says he's going to come, that is unexpectedly and suddenly. Every other perspective, you can figure it out. Let me give you an example. With the mid-tribulation view, there are those who hold the view that halfway through this tribulation period, that's when the church is actually taken up, that we have to go through half of it. The problem is, if you believe that, all you have to do is watch for a great world leader to sign a covenant with Israel and count down three and a half years, and you know Jesus is going to be there. There's nothing unexpected about that. 
For those who would take a post-tribulation view, that is that Jesus will take the church after they've gone through the tribulation, all you have to do, same thing, watch for the world leader to sign a covenant with Israel. Count down seven years, at the end of seven years, from the moment of that signing, Jesus is here. That's what the Bible teaches, that there will be a seven-year covenant at the end of which Messiah comes. But pre-tribulation, we have no idea when that's going to be. It could be, as some of you I know are hoping, before I'm done tonight. So, he says, I'm going to give you a crown. I hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What is this crown that he's talking about? Let me just give you a spiritual, uh, scriptural opinion. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? I think one of the crowns offered, especially to the church of Philadelphia, that church of brotherly love, the church that is out there for the lost, that is saving lost people, that church is going to receive a crown. But it's not a gold crown you put on your head. It's a crown of people. Can you imagine being in heaven and watching William Carey surrounded by a crown of people, thanking him for going, thanking him for listening, thanking him for doing what the Lord called him to do. His crown. His crown at the calling of the church. The crown gang and the commission are connected. The crown and the commission. The commission is to make disciples. The crown is the disciples that you have made by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the work of God. And it's those who gather around. A few years ago, and I forget the Christian artist, wrote a song called Thank You. You ever hear that song? Who was that? Is it Ray Bowles? Yeah. Thank you for giving to the Lord. It's all about meeting someone in heaven. They rush up to you and say, thank you, that's your crown. What a great crown. That's one I want to wear. I mean, just to have people saying thanks, and you go, all I was doing was sitting in his lap. That's all I was doing. Jesus' imminent coming, gang. Jesus' imminent coming is my immediate concern. And when that's the case, when that's the case, I have a Philadelphia love. A Philadelphia love that says I would rather risk offense than lose you to the enemy. I would rather face embarrassment or ridicule or even rejection than leave a single person to the off chance that someone else is going to tell them about Jesus. That's Philadelphia love. That's the love I believe the Holy Spirit wants to get into our lives. That overcomes the fear of being in the workplace and looking at someone and going, man, that guy needs Jesus. Instead going up to him and going, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. You might be spurned, you might be rejected, you might be made fun of. Especially some of you Navy guys. Don't give me that Jesus stuff. I don't have time for that right now. Load the guns. No. I don't know. They do that. I'm a pastor. I know. Hunter's going, just shut up, Rick. Move on. Jesus is coming suddenly. He's coming suddenly. And the possibility of that sudden imminent return develops the heart of Philadelphia in me. I know he's coming any time. I don't have any time to waste. And I'm not going to waste it. Well, finally, number four, the eternal motivation. Verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I'll make him a pillar. Real quickly, the significance of the pillar here. Here, I, I won't take you back and read this. I'll just tell you about it. Solomon, when he was building the temple, he hired a man named Hiram to come into the temple and build two pillars. Two massive pillars in the temple, and they were beautiful and, and artistic. And after they were na- built, they were named. 
He called each one of the pillars names. The first name was, well, I'll read it to you, 1 Kings 7.21. He set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Jachin, J-A-C-H-I-N. And he set up the left pillar and he named it Boaz, Jachin and Boaz. What do these two names mean? These two pillars in the temple. Jachin means he shall establish, and Boaz means in his strength. And the illusion here that Jesus uses is wonderful as he alludes back to the Old Testament, I will make you a pillar in the temple. A Jewish person would think, pillars in the temple, Jacob and Boaz. Oh, I will be established in his strength. I will be established in his strength. As a pillar in the temple of God, I get to be an overcomer. And it's not about me. It's not about how well I do that His strength establishes me. I get to be a pillar. I'm an overcomer. Well, who's the overcomer? 1 John 5, 5, the overcomer is the one. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We still have a hard time actually believing that's all it takes. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the work that you've been called to. The work of faith. So the overcomer is the person of faith established in his strength, in Jesus' strength, like a pillar. And he goes on and he says, and I love this, he says, I will write on him, Jesus speaking, I will write on him, the overcomer, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. So I get three names. I get the name of God, I get the name of new Jerusalem, all of this somehow inscribed wonderfully on me, and I get... The new name. The new name of Christ. This is the name, by the way, that nobody even knows yet. I get that name inscribed on me. What does this mean? What does this indicate? This last week, Cheryl and I got our passports. We're going to Israel in January. And I'm freaking out. I can't wait. And the passports came, and I'm looking at it, and it was really kind of sad, because I had my old passport from 15 years ago, and the pictures were just... I realize what really happens. You don't ever look at two passports side by side. But it's a passport. That's what he's talking about here. You have the name of God written on you, the authority. You have the name of New Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means you can come and go freely in New Jerusalem. And you've got the name, the new name of Jesus on you. You wear it like a passport for kingdom travel. I get to go bearing the name of my king. I go bearing, by the way, an exemption from the Great Tribulation. That's important. I go bearing the right to enter New Jerusalem, and I go with the name of Jesus as my absolute security. People have said, you're going to Israel this time? Aren't you a little insecure? Aren't you a little worried about the security? No. I'm worried about the security when I get out there and drive on 20. That's when I'm worried about my security. But man, go in the name of God. You go in the name of God. You've got the passport of the Lord. And what can I do with a passport? I can go. I can go. Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, give us ears to hear. And I pray, Lord, that you will develop in us Philadelphia hearts. That we would have such a passion for those around us. Such a love of mankind. Not put off by the sin of the world. God, that is a reality that we have to deal with. But instead, seeing people through Jesus' eyes. 
Holy Spirit, help us to see people through Jesus' eyes. And with what little strength we have, pour out and save those who are lost. And may we rejoice and exult in their salvation. Not get all hung up about our own. In Jesus' name, Amen.